everybody, and welcome to the She Rises Studios podcast. I am your host today, Angela Bell, and I am excited to get started with our guest. Today, we have Nikki Cooper. Nikki is a British nurse who moved to New Zealand 20 years, married a Kiwi farmer, and had three sons. Premature twins came first. She is a clinical nurse specialist in infant, child, adolescent, and parental health, and works privately as a coach and therapist. So, Nikki, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, or I should say, Kiora from New Zealand. I love that. So I can definitely relate. I myself had premature twins. I don't think they were as premature as your twins, but mine were six weeks early. Yeah, it's a it's a big ask, isn't it? Yeah, it can be. It can be. And I could definitely relate to a lot of things that you talked about in your book chapter. But to get started, I would just like to know, can you tell us more about your journey from becoming a registered nurse with over 30 years of experience to becoming a life coach and consultant? What inspired that transformation? Oh, gosh, it's it's such a it's such a weird um, series of events, really. I mean, I never imagined I would be going into children's um, nursing at all, ever, ever. That was never part of the part of the equation. It was really, it was really circumstantial. And then when we, when the children, I mean, our children are now teenagers, and when they, when we, when they grew up, um, a, a, I w- we were actually at my graduation due um, for my master's degree, um, which had been delayed because of the COVID pandemic here in New Zealand. And um, my husband suddenly said to me at dinner. The kids had gone back upstairs to, you know, stare at the screens like they do. And and he said, I think we should sell the farm, <laughs> which was a huge shock. Um, and he said that the kids had told him um, in the sort of six months prior to that, that they actually didn't see farming as, as their future, which was um, a very difficult conversation for him to have with them because he'd been a, you know, he was 18 when his dad died. He was the ninth child. So he kind of inherited and then bought out his siblings. So it was a big journey for him. And one of the things that he said was that um, he never got a choice as to the career that he ended up with. So this was a gift that he could give them was that he could give them a choice. So suddenly, and and if I'm really honest, I'd probably had aspirations to leave uh, over a period of time I'd be- it become quite unsustainable as a one-man show in this in this rural area and you you're kind of 0800 Nikki Facebook Nikki all the time and you're never off duty um so we moved um a- an hour and a half north to uh the the nearest city and I stepped very easily into a job with public health and right at the peak of the pandemic uh which you know certainly public health has got a little bit of um visibility a lot more visibility now since the pandemic as to the job that it does um and it was a, it was an easy transition to do i wanted something that wasn't quite stressful so i didn't have to train to do anything because it was very similar to the work that i'd done rurally but then as as things started to calm down here in New Zealand and they sort of reduced the restrictions, et cetera, I felt very burnt out. I, there was a lot of compassion fatigue. I, th- I know I wasn't the only one that was thinking that. And I went to a uh, a seminar. It was a leadership seminar. I felt I felt a little bit of an imposter because there was a lot of hierarchy in the in the health services there. And the guy that was running it was a clinical psychologist, and he said, "What is it that you do? What is it that you love? And what have you, what have you been doing?" So I started to tell him this, you know, amazing story of how I'd been supporting parents, etc. 
And he said, you're a coach. And I'd never heard that expression. I always imagined coaching was sports, you know, sports teams, etc. And the more I looked at it and I thought, well, that's actually, that's everything I've always done. I've always been about meeting people psychologically and, and having that um, that relationship that sort of takes them from one place and sort of walks alongside them. So, so yeah, the more, the more I um, looked into it, I was like, yeah, that's, I think that's, that, I think that's where I'm going. So it's been a sort of an evolution and it's a learning process. Um, and, and the other thing, Angela, I think that it's also a reason that I've done a lot of what I've done is because I've needed to do some stuff. And I think that a lot of people that go into any sort of therapy or coaching or even um, helping profession is that there is still stuff that you've got to do for yourself. And you can't do that until you, you can't help anyone until you've done it yourself. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that completely. So now you mentioned the importance of having a sense of purpose and direction in life. How do you help your clients discover their life's purpose and why is it so crucial? The biggest thing is listening because they will tell you everything if you really listen, really, really actively listen and you're really present. Um, the amount of solutions that I hear in the conversations that I have with people is that they're already, they're already there. They have all, the, all of what they need inside of them to make the changes and the and the and the changes to their beliefs etc and and the unpacking of of and and sort of reflection on their stuff so really just listening you hear all the answers and you've got a lot of you know you, you can you can acquire a lot of skills I mean obviously after 30 years of nursing I have acquired a lot of skills um, and, and often you'll be listening to people and you'll think, oh gosh, yes, I, I know, I know what you need to do here. You need to do blah, blah, blah. And that's a very traditional old fashioned medical model of, I know what's best for you. <laughs> um, and, and, and actually th- that's the complete opposite. And I think that's the difference is, is working with people at a, at a way that, empowers them to discover it themselves because I think if you're going to get more bang for your buck they have to have those aha moments where they go oh actually that's why I do that isn't it um and you're kind of that sounding board you're almost like their little internal voice and you're you're unpacking it with them and there might be some teaching moments or some sort of stuff that you you may sort of just nudge them along the way because obviously people have a tendency to go off on a tangent um and it's really just sort of navigating that and guiding that. And, and that's probably my biggest superpower and, and zooming out and looking at the bigger picture. And so I often will see where it's going. I, I often get surprised too, um, but, uh, but it's just such a beautiful thing when people really just have those realizations of what, what it is that they need to do and how they're going to do it. Amazing. Where do you find people get most stuck? I know for you, like, when you say that everybody already has what they need inside of them, what stops them from doing it themselves then? It's significant resistance, avoidance. It, it's, 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 it's almost like, you know, I take for an example, people who smoke, you know, that's, and I'm an ex-smoker, so I can say this from, from experience. When I first started nursing, you know, doctors and nurses were smoking in the staff rooms, almost not, 
quite with their patients, uh, but they were, you know, it was pretty close and probably, you know, 50 years before that they were. But it, but it's, it's kind of resistance. You know it's not healthy for you, but there's something about that practice that, that allows you to, okay, to, so for an example, smoking. Smoking is a genius way of calming down your nervous system because ultimately when people will they'll take an eight minute break from stress or or something that's that's overwhelming them and they just feel that they just need a break. So they take a break and they take some deep breaths outside, but they always take a smoking buddy. So they, they ultimately <laughs> will take someone and just articulate how they're feeling. They'll whinge, they'll moan, they'll 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 unpack it in that eight minutes and and they'll develop a relationship and they'll have that sort of sense of community so all of those things are genius ways of sorting your head out and then you go back in and you're and and you're okay I feel better now so you know we've we've spent a lot of time doing stuff that's particularly unhelpful in that health respect um but the actual concept of it is genius so if you could find a way of going outside (laughs) having a breather (laughs) taking lots of deep breaths and taking someone that you feel connected to and actually talk to is genius but the the nicotine and all of that sort of stuff obviously is very unhelpful so I think we find things that kind of half work um but we get quite attached to them because they work and they make us feel better or we avoid something that feels uncomfortable. You know, so there's all of those mindset um, things, which is always really hard for people to do because it involves uh, pushing past resistance. <laughs> and nobody likes that. We're all comfort junkies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that smoking example too, because it's so true. I mean, you take a break. So A, taking a break. How many of us fight against taking a break because we have no excuse to do it, right? It's like, why do you need an excuse for a break? So you take a break, you take deep breaths, you get fresh air. Well, it's not so fresh when, but you're outside and you've got a trusted friend that you're getting it all out. You're not pushing them down. You're letting those feelings out. How can we create better habits to do those things so that we don't need, you know, crutches to do them? Oh, see, that's the million dollar question. And I think that that majority of people (laughs) probably... You know, I, I, I've spent such a long time, you know, I spent years as an intensive care nurse and also a hospice nurse. So I would have some very, very sensitive, you know, uh, conversations with people at the end of their life or when they're facing major dramas. Majority of people will hit a point where it's rock bottom. So it's confronting and it's a, oh my God, I can't believe this has got to this point. I really have to do something. And that's actually, for from a health perspective, that's for some people that's too late um and then there's that awful um regrets and and I haven't done and you know all of those sorts of things so it's really I guess it's such a personal journey you have to really want to do something differently and it and that looks different for everybody I you you, you'd be insane if you thought you could sort of put a blanket statement as to this is what you have to do it's so individual um I've had some resistance of group um, courses and, and programs to give out because a lot of people will not do the work that they need to do if they're in that setting because it's it's too hard. You won't, You are not going to become vulnerable enough to allow yourself to go to the place that you need to do. And a lot of these behaviours, and this is 
you know, from my own learnings as a human being and as a mother and working with lots of people is that most of these things that we did were pre-verbal. So they all came down to that very basic attachment that we had, um, how our caregivers showed up. And, and that's not to put them in a box of they weren't good enough and they didn't help and support me. They only knew what they knew. You know, what we know about neuroscience and psychology and, and, and neuroplasticity and attachment and all of that stuff now is phenomenal compared to what, what our ancestors knew. And, and it's not as if, you know, the last seven generations have had it easy. There's been a lot of trauma. So that's sort of all embedded and, 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 and sort of we learn things that are modelled. When we're born, we learn things that are modelled by repetition, and what we see um, and often there's a, a highly emotional charge and then we have that um, you know that neuroplasticity we have that neural pathway and we make we make that memory the higher the charge the the deeper the memory um, so we were a blank canvas but and yet all of this has come in those very pre-verbal uh, um, those pre-verbal years and so that's quite an immature brain that has then developed coping strategies that are probably maladaptive. They're not helpful. They're not healthy to adults, but we're still relying on them. And so for, to allow people to sort of go to that level, that, and we're talking deep core work here, most people don't do it. It's hard. So we just keep muddling through and muddling through and, you know, your brain with a negative, uncomfortable feeling will probably only... Um, allow you to sit with that for about 90 seconds before it then allows you to sort of naturally self-soothe um, <laughs> but you can still go oh no I've still got that feeling I can add another 90 seconds and I met a lot of people who'd been angry or resentful or uh deep grief, uh, et cetera, for 45 years of their life. And I would often meet them in hospital. They just never really managed to cope with how they feel and how they regulate how they feel and how they manage that. They, you know, it's sticking plasters, it's emotional painkillers or, and, and for some people it's um, sticking plasters on bullet wounds, unfortunately. So yeah, it's a big job. It's, it's very complex work. I don't think I, even I, I know I don't have all the answers. But that's okay. No one does. And like you said, we're all doing the best we can with what we've got, right? So now I know empathy is a core element to your approach. How does, can you talk about why empathy is so important when it comes to helping other people? Oh gosh, it's uh, I I've uh, I suffer with chronic empathy. I do too. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> A lot of that is is instinctual because we've had to we've had to read the room <laughs> so we can you know our, our our needs were often based on how other people manage that so we've had to read the room um but it's 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 okay you know it it's a kind of a normal thing to feel sorry for someone but for to, to deeply meet them where they're at and really understand what it is that they're thinking and feeling where that resistance is coming from that comes that comes from a deep something inside you that really connects with people and it's about building that relationship and actually you know just sitting in the mud with them and and allowing them to be um and, and that and that is a felt thing um i think we all have it i think a lot of people suppress it but um it is a beautiful connection to really really understand what what's going on with people but i think we all have it i'm sure yeah, of it. i agree i agree 
Now, Nikki, you have a you have a new book coming out. Can you tell us a bit about that? It's about how I became that nurse in that rural area. And that was really based on me becoming the person that I needed at that time of my life. And and so that's always been a benchmark for me. Um, you know, I, I it's not that I judge people and it probably I hope it doesn't come across that way, but I've often looked at people that I've worked with and thought of myself, could I would I feel comfortable being vulnerable enough to work with you and go to the place that I need to? And sadly, for a lot of people that I've worked with over the years, and I haven't. So having had that lived experience really gave me a, a, a deep knowing of how I could help these parents. And they were predominantly women because often it's the women that show up for the appointments, etc. Um and so th- it's a really about the journey of how I got there. So so I just thought I'd share it in my book. And it's Becoming an Unstoppable Woman, the journey continues. So now, Nikki, where can our audience find you if they want to learn more about you, more about what they do? What's the best way for them to connect with you? Well, probably not get a ticket to New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Although I have to say, we're quite nice down here. Um, I like New Zealand. I've been to New Zealand. It is beautiful. <laughs> I, I actually I did a conference at Hobbiton, uh, which is a real place um, from the, the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit. Um, but I had to dress up in the in the gear to to give a presentation on this actually, and it was to medical um, medical people. So it was it was an interesting <laughs> it was an interesting time. But um, online, I'm online. I have Instagram. Um, I have most of the social media pages. I give out a lot of free stuff all the time because things you know a lot of the content that I put out is is from my own learnings and reflections but it's also little conversations that I've had with people and I think gosh that might help somebody so I put it out there um I've been criticized hugely for not having a how do I reach you kind of thing I, I still struggle with the business thing and I think that's having worked for free health services all of my career um but I'm I have a website www.nickycooper.life. Um, I work from cradle to grave with people. Literally, I do end of life coaching as well. Yeah, online and online and on all the social media platforms and um, and and a website. Amazing. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I love your hair. And thank you. Thank you. I thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the She Rises Studios podcast. We'll talk to y'all again soon. Thank you all so much for joining another episode of She Rises Studios podcast. Please follow us online at She Rises Studios. You can also visit our website at www.sherisesstudios.com.